Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 16 of the Addicted Mind podcast. My name is Dwayne Osterlin, and I'm your host. We have a wonderful guest today. His name is Tony Ramike, and he is going to talk about the importance of the therapeutic relationship in facilitating change. This is a really in-depth episode. We talk a lot about theory and the history of psychotherapy, and we really delve deep into the importance of that relationship you have with a therapist when you're trying to create change in your life and how important that is. I really thought this was an important episode because in psychotherapy, the research shows that the therapeutic relationship is the number one predictor of successful therapy and successful change within the client. So it is, it is really critical to the therapeutic process in whatever you're dealing with, addiction, depression, anxiety, anything like that, the therapeutic relationship is key to facilitating that change. So I'm really excited that uh, Tony wanted to come on and talk about it. And I really enjoyed the episode. In fact, we enjoyed it so much that after we turned off the microphone, we continued the discussion for another hour. I probably should have recorded it and made a second episode because it was, it was really interesting. So I hope you enjoy it. And I hope it's a great episode for you. Once again, if you're enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, please think about rating and reviewing us in iTunes. It really does help us and it really does expand our reach. So thank you so much if you've done that. And if you haven't, please do it. And why don't we go ahead and start this episode? Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. Our guest today is Tony Ramiki. And Tony, you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, thanks, Dwayne. I am Tony Ramiki. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist with a private practice. 
in the city of Tustin, California. So not too far away from you here, Dwayne, in Long Beach, California. Yeah, not too far. But you have a much better view than I have since the oh. ocean's just a <laughs> just a little just bit a away. stone's throw away. <laughs> but yeah, I'm in private practice. And, and as you mentioned, yeah, I, I work with sex addiction in addition to other issues related to depression, anxiety. I do quite a bit of couples work, which I really enjoy doing as well. And yeah, it's just, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. You're welcome. I'm, I'm glad that you agreed to come on. I think um, I love your expertise. I love what you do. Being able to, having some pleasure of working with you in the past. I love how you work with clients and, and the relationships that you create with clients. And that's kind of what we decided to talk about today is I think one of the most important therapeutic issues is that relationship with your therapist. Yeah, I agree completely. And, and and thank you for having me on to talk about this subject matter, because this is something that I'm just so, gosh, I mean, to me, this is, like you said, just one of the most important parts of therapy is the therapeutic relationship with the client. And it's something that I have found to be just something I've really enjoyed researching more, just finding more about, again, because I think it's something that is is paramount to good treatment is the relationship that you have with your client. So yeah, I, I definitely, I would 100% agree with that. And I'm so glad that you kind of chose this topic to to talk about, because I, I agree with you. If the therapeutic relationship, I think, is the number one predictor of therapeutic success, which means client change, getting better. So if you're out there with your therapist, you got to make sure that you really bond with your therapist and and have that relationship for a therapeutic change to take place. Is that right? Is that? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that's my experience completely. I feel like the therapeutic relationship, again, really is that key element of healing and transformation that takes place for a client. So I think there's so much about the therapeutic relationship that is just of utmost importance. And working with clients, I think it's really important that they feel that they have that relationship with their client that they have, or I'm sorry, with their therapist and that they have that sense about their therapist, that they experience that care, they experience that empathic attunement, that they're really experiencing safety in the therapeutic alliance with their client, which I know we're going to talk more about today. But I really see these as some of the real key elements of a therapeutic relationship that is priming the ther or I'm sorry, the client for the type of change that they're usually coming in to work on. Right, right. So Let's go back for, for people who are listening. I want to kind of go back a little bit and let's kind of talk about, because we talked about this earlier as we were kind of prepping to do this episode, talk a little bit about how kind of the history of therapy a little bit and how the relationship kind of, the therapeutic relationship kind of became more important than when we first started with therapy. I mean, back in the early history, maybe Freud going way back then, but talking about that a little bit. Yeah, I also, I love history, and I love looking at the history of, of what started out in psychiatry and psychoanalysis and what has now evolved into psychotherapy, whether that's done with a marriage and family therapist like myself or whether that's done with a, a clinical social worker, a psychologist, psychiatrist. But yeah, we've really moved over 120, 130 years time now in terms of, of psychotherapy, being a psychoanalyst, a psychiatrist, and moving into psychotherapy. And, and I think there's been such evolvement in terms of where we've started, as you mentioned, to where we are now and understanding what exactly is the therapist's role in psychotherapy, which has evolved so much. And I think if, if we think about the history of that and we think going back to early psychiatry and early psychoanalysis and we think about what was the role or function of the therapist or the, or the, the analyst at that point, you know, there was really more of a removed 
type of stance, that the therapist was more, um, a blank slate is probably a term that's overused, but, but really a more removed type of posture in that person's work, where I think as we've grown or we've evolved in this work over many, 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 many decades, and we've seen that things have really transferred as we've you know, really studied and researched this work to really understand just how important the relationship between the therapist and the client really is, that there's much more value in the therapist beyond just interpretation or being a transferential object for the client. We're really understanding that there's a extremely important element, particularly, you know, I would say in the last 15 to 20 years, where we've really moved more into understanding about, you know, neuroscience. We've really looked more in attachment theory and really starting to understand how pulling from the work of Bobley and John Bobley and, and really looking at attachment theory and really looking at how that early attachment is really so primary in terms of how we structurally form who we are, how we see ourselves, how we see others, how we see relationships, and then the, the psychopathology that potentially develops as a result of maybe poor attachment experiences. And now as therapists, we get the benefit of being able to be a healing experience for that client and, and bringing back to the client maybe all the deficits that were initially experienced. And we get the, the wonderful benefit basically of helping a client. I see them as having a reparenting experience essentially. And, and that's the gift that we get to bring. So I think we've, having, uh, we've had this very evolutionary kind of experience that's happened from removed to, to much more present and, and much more, and really understanding again, the benefits of a present empathically attuned therapist. Absolutely. Okay. Okay. So kind of going back from the beginning, when, when people were psychoanalysis, where maybe the therapist sat behind the client, didn't even look at the client, that was kind of how therapy started. And now we've moved to this very interactive dynamic between a client and a therapist and that interaction. And, and we're kind of learning that that interaction is actually part of the change process, that that back and forth between the client and the therapist talking about their situation and, and the clients, you said attunement. So let's kind of go back a little bit and, and talk about the dynamics of a good, strong therapeutic relationship then. Yeah. Now we're moving into this, just for the listener, I want to make sure that they, that we're clear, like now that we've moved to this and you said in the last 10 years, moved to this very tight interaction, I guess, between clients. I want to kind of go into that and look a little bit at that. Yeah, no, that's a great, great place to start for us and, and for our listeners. Yeah, again, I think the therapist's role has, has just transformed so much from what we think about, again, from early analysis, in which, as you pointed out, a lot of times the analyst would actually sit behind the patient with the patient not even really having any form of eye contact with the therapist to now having a very engaged dynamic between the therapist and the client. And understanding, uh, my mind went back here for a second, you know, I was, I was thinking about Winnicott, and, and for those maybe who are not familiar with Donald Winnicott, he was an analyst, came from England, and was not exactly a contemporary of Freud. I think he, he came, I think he was born about 40 years later, but he was an object relations therapist or analyst, and he was, in my kind of opinion, you know, he was really one of the early pioneers of attachment theory, you know, in terms of looking at object relations theory and really understanding what was the dynamic between the child. And my understanding is Winnicott was a pediatrician, and so he worked a lot with children. So and, when, when we, just to kind of clarify, yeah. when we talk about like object relation and attachment, can you just kind of give a brief definition so someone who doesn't know what those terms are, 
kind of understand what you're what you're saying. Yeah, great clarification. So with object relations theory, kind of a, a twenty thousand foot overview, essentially what Winnicott was looking at was he was looking at the relationship between the parent, particularly the mother, going back in in terms of what that work looked like back in the day of psychoanalysis. And so really looking at the mother-child relationship. And Winnicott was very aware that 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 relationship was of utmost importance in terms of shaping that child and, and potentially shaping further psychopathology. And what Winnicott was observing was that there was an object and a relationship And so essentially object relations theory was about the child's relationship to what we call the object. And and in this case, the object would be a mother. Now we would think of it simply as a caregiver or an early attachment figure, somebody that could be a mother, that could be a father, that could be a grandparent, if that's the person who's raising the child. And so object relations theory was really focused on the relationship again between this child and, and ultimately a primary caregiver. And Winnicott looked at the importance of that relationship, and he was sure that that was of vital importance for mental health or mental illness. And so he was somebody who essentially believed had less, I think there was even some criticism that he received because he wasn't as much about the interpretation, which again, that's a Freudian concept, early psychoanalysis for some of those who are familiar or aren't familiar with that. And Winnicott was very much more looking at the relationship. And I think as we've moved from Winnicott to then maybe John Bobley, who John Bobley was also very interested in looking at the attachment experience between the child and a caregiver. And he worked with a woman named Mary Ainsworth, who ultimately the two of them were able to work out what we still use today, which is looking at different attachment forms. And depending on the different types of attachment forms that we have, will basically determine relational functioning. It determines relational satisfaction and even some forms of psychopathology that we look at today in psychotherapy. And so looking at all these primary forms of attachment between a child and a caregiver, I think is now what we're looking at in terms of psychotherapy between a therapist and a client. So essentially we've been able to evolve to that today. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. So what they're kind of saying is, is that this early relationship that you have with your primary caregiver is you hold on to that relationship as a, as a template. Exactly. And then that template, when we look at now, we look at therapeutic attachment, that template is now between you and, and a client. Absolutely. Right. What I see, I'm sure you see, you know, most clinicians will see in their office is a client who comes in with any particular issue that they want to work on. And as we sit with them, build our therapeutic alliance and begin hearing about the client's history and understanding the client, you know, really getting to know our client, what we tend to find is that there's patterns. And we tend to find that there is a template, as you mentioned, schema, you know, but there is a almost a structural blueprint in terms of how this person sees themselves, sees relationships, and how that works in their lives or doesn't work in their lives, essentially, 
And that's usually why they're here in psychotherapy. And as we start to look at those templates and those patterns, what we can generally deduce is that these were the type of imprinted patterns or templates that were developed out of these early primary relationships. And we get the opportunity now as therapists, and, and I think this is through the benefit of neuroplasticity and neuroscience and everything that, that's, you know, we've really learned in the last 20 years or so, is that you know, we get the opportunity to create an environment, what we call the psychotherapeutic alliance or the environment, Winnicott called it the holding environment, which we get this, for me, it's just an amazing opportunity to present this wonderfully safe, caring, empathically attuned, which we'll talk more about, environment that is a primer for client healing and client transformation and essentially developing what I hope will become awareness of templates, but also maybe some new templates that they get to develop in terms of being able to really find healthier relational patterns that really bring satisfying, joyful experiences into the life, many of which are, are lacking when they come into our offices. Right, right. Uh, and a lot of them come from those family dynamics where those templates were pretty dysfunctional. And they, so that causes a lot of distress in their life. So kind of to sum up to hear what I hear you saying is like, we started early on in this journey of psychotherapy way back with Freud, and it was all about interpretation. And we've moved from that more into the actual relationship in real time that we're doing with the client. And that's where that therapeutic change takes place. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think, again, we're getting the wonderful benefit now of great work, again, that's being done in the areas of neuroscience and, and really understanding, I think, what happens from a, a neurostructural, neurobiological place. And, and again, great people like uh, Louis Cozzolino, Dan Siegel, Alan Shore, um, you know, people who have really been the, the pioneer, Pat Ogden, you know, people who have really been the pioneers of understanding the the neuroscience behind relationships and the neuroscience behind attachment and and the neuroscience behind pathologies ultimate pathologies and again pulling from attachment theory and and these early you know even object relations theory as i mentioned with winnicott and really being able to just understand that so much of of who we are is as a result as you mentioned of these family dynamics right the the social environment in which we grew up in and and a lot of times I think about this as a survival perspective, right? You know, we're, we're born into this world completely dependent and our survival and our, our hope for a future exists in that how are we going to best attach ourselves to and form relationships with those who are caring for us so that we form a dependent relationship in which we have the best chances of survival. And a lot of times that's learning to limbically connect, which we can do, you know, we, we limbically connect and grow the part of ourselves that has essentially the best chances of surviving. And we develop those templates and, and they may not ultimately be satisfying, you know, in the long term in terms of what they tell us about connection, what they tell us about attachment, the types of partners that we seek out and the types of choices that we tend to make all built around these these early templates that really were survival based. I mean, they really were in our best interests early, early on, but we may have, they may certainly no longer be in our best interests because ultimately they may have been formed out of either early relational experiences in which maybe there were mental health issues by a parent or a primary caregiver, uh, substance abuse, neglect, trauma, and all different types of things in which 
we may have formed relational templates around, but but certainly are not in our best interest in terms of ultimate satisfaction and joy and healing. Right. So we're we're basing. So we kind of we set these templates down, or, or they're set down for us as young children and babies and and such. And then that goes forward into our life, and sometimes they're dysfunctional because of those primary relationships. So let's go into like why is this important between that uh, relationship between the therapist and a client. So how does that play into that relationship? Yeah, it's it's great in terms of again the role the therapist gets to take in that. And a lot of times when a client comes in and there's a tremendous amount of distress and generally maybe even potentially a crisis that they're presenting with and you know and a lot of times we get clients in who are very dysregulated and and maybe have spent a great deal of their life being very dysregulated and maybe a little quick background on that maybe for people who don't know as much about affective regulation and dysregulation a lot of times depending on the type of early childhood environments and, and relational experiences and templates that we've developed we may have developed one that ultimately is very dysregulated meaning we may have a sympathetic nerve nervous system that tends to be on, on high alert for potentially a lot of different reasons. Maybe we've experienced a lot of trauma early in life. Maybe we've developed crises, but maybe we developed, maybe our brain developed in such a way in which we really weren't able to grow up in, in the safest of environments. Maybe we weren't grown up in soothing environments. And so it might be very difficult for our prefrontal cortex to really regulate the limbic part of our brain and really calm and soothe and, and offer kind of a balanced sympathetic parasympathetic nervous system experience. So when a client first comes in, I think one of the benefits of being a therapist is automatically being able to, one, empathically attune to that client and letting them know and letting them understand that, you know, we understand the pain that they're presenting with. And I tend to find, as I'm sure you do and many others have as well, is that alone can be just so transformational in a first session even to just talk about a client feeling so relieved as they leave a first session, just saying like, I, I feel understood and I feel like you really understand what I'm presenting with and what I'm struggling with. And, and that alone sometimes feels so important. So when a client comes in the door and they meet a therapist that has that attunement, what might that, ex- if, if we were in the client's shoes, what might the client experience that as? Like a therapist who really kind of, gets them, I guess, is that? Yeah, and kind of that idea, again, we've been talking about, about empathic attunement. It's it's interesting. It actually makes me think of a, a story. There's there's a, a wonderful book called Tea with Winnicott uh, by an author, Brett Carr, who's a, an educator, scholar, and I believe also a clinician who wrote this wonderful book called Tea with Winnicott. And in there, or not in there, but I've heard him regale a story about Winnicott being a psychoanalyst with whom, I guess, what I had heard was uh, part of Winnicott's reputation as a therapist was he was kind of a th- an, or an analyst. He was kind of an analyst of last resort in a, for a lot of people. And in one case, this woman who had tried a couple other long-term previous analysts experience and had poor experiences ultimately then went to Winnicott and she regaled her story and, and said, basically, I don't want to die sad, miserable person. And Winnicott's response was something to the effect of, I am absolutely so sorry that you've had to struggle with that your whole life. And it was in that empathy and in that knowing that she expressed that that in and of itself, I guess, was so transformational and so impactful. So this would be like kind of going back because I'm kind of putting all the pieces together. 
this would be probably her primary attachments couldn't have that kind of empathy. And here is somebody who could. So maybe their first, her first caregivers didn't, couldn't do that or whatever she experienced that wasn't there. And then all of a sudden she goes in to see this therapist who expresses this deep kind of empathy or connection or understanding. And that in of itself was life-changing for her. Yeah, and I think so often that's exactly what we're an empathically attuned therapist is giving to their client. And and I think there are so many people who present in therapy who haven't had that experience, weren't known in their childhood, you know, or by their primary caregivers, or or at times not known well enough in terms of maybe some of these early wounds and these hurts. And to be seen, you know, to be known by another human being, I think is one of the most wonderful gifts that we as therapists can give. But also I think it's just one of the most wonderful human experiences. And I think when we think about healthy, happy marital relationship, you know, I think what I've heard a lot of couples share is that they feel so known and understood by their partner. And I think that is a part of that empathic attunement that again, is us as therapists can give our clients and I just think that that reaches such a deep part of us and it's such a deep desire within each one of us to be known by another person, and particularly where there's pain. And because a lot of times if we've, I call people who, who have kind of grown up with, um, we talk a lot about good enough parenting, which is kind of a psychoanalytic kind of phrase Winnicott talked about, meaning, you know, we just have to be good enough parents. We just have to be good enough in terms of our empathic attunement, our emotional availability, our investment, and we're not looking for perfection and certainly not about perfection. We're not gonna certainly do it perfectly as therapists. Parents are certainly not gonna do it perfectly, but we're looking for good enough. And a lot of times, for whatever reason, again, that just wasn't present and, and couldn't be present. And so giving that to our club or being able to provide that to our, th- our clients, I'm sorry, is again, I think just one of the greatest gifts that we give to our clients is to know them deeply and, you know, I'm sure this has been the experience for you as well. You know, clients a lot of times don't come in and they don't present as linear as we'd like them to or as clearly as they'd like to. And we have to do a lot of unraveling. And, and I think when we put words to the experience that we read almost in a subtext right. type of experience and we're able to put words to that, I think that is so meaningful. And I think that is an empathic attunement. Right. So like when I when I experience it with my clients, I, I believe my clients feel, they feel safe, they feel understood, they, and a lot of times I was just thinking as you were talking too, a lot of clients when they come to therapy, there is no one else in their life that can be a safe place for them, like that they can actually share their pain, that there is no one else out there. And when they come to a therapist, all of a sudden there is this new kind of relationship, like right there in that moment, someone who can be there and understand them. Yeah, absolutely. You know, a lot of times, you know, maybe a first time experience ever. And you triggered something that I I think I'd started to present. And and I think you picked right back up on it was, I kind of see people and or experience people as they've unraveled their history in their life is, I call them kind of self contained units, meaning they've really learned to do intimate life or relational life, lack of a better term, really just by themselves and and never really knowing how to be emotionally, in a healthy way, emotionally dependent on another person. And there's so much emotional regulation that we now know happens between people. We limbically resonate or and we, we soothe and we calm and we love and we nurture 
in relational context. And so many people, again, didn't have that. That was not their early primary caregiving experiences or their family of origin experiences. And and working in sex addiction, and this is something you know so well as well, is you know a lot of times we see clients who have learned to find other forms of soothing and, and whether that exactly. requires living in fantasy, uh, living through compulsive behaviors, and but not knowing how to use other people in a healthy way, you know, not knowing how to be healthily dependent in a healthy relational way. And the therapeutic relationship, as you mentioned, you know, providing safety, providing that empathic attunement, providing understanding is so key. Of course, you know, I, th- I think we have working with a client who may come in sexually addicted offers other forms of challenges to the rela- that relational aspect, right? which, you know, we, we are sensitive for and, and understand. But I think most clients who are going to present, uh, to your point again, have just never experienced this. And, and this is really their first opportunity to get that experience. So what does like, um, what kind of skills does a therapist need to have? Is it skill-based, personality-based? What is it that a, that a therapist needs to be able to do or should be able to do to create this? That's a great question, and, and it's one I struggle with and, and I wonder about quite a bit is how much of this can be learned, how much of this can be acquired, how much of this can be refined, and I certainly think quite a bit. I mean, I think as we gain years of experience, I think as therapists, we really can learn to refine this particular skill. And I do think quite a bit of it is temperament. And I do think quite a bit of it is the therapist and who they are as people. And and I think a good therapist will more often than not be a congruent therapist. And who they are as a person, for better or worse at times, is who the client gets in the room. And and hopefully if a lot of work has been done, the therapist has done a lot of his or her own work and done a lot of psychotherapy and, and also understands who they are to a greater degree as, as best as they're able by that point and, and who they are in the room to the client, recognizing their own blind spots, recognizing their own biases, blind spots, and predilections, and, and understanding that knowledge as they work with the client, I think is also helpful. I'm a huge fan of, of therapists having done their own work and really understanding that and understanding what that may look like in the room with the client. And, and so they're aware of that. We talk a lot about counter-transference and the transferential relationship between the therapist and the client. And yet, um, but I think I think there's going to be therapists of all sorts of temperaments and various levels of warmth and, and various levels of empathic attunement. And so I think it's going to be a, kind of a spectrum-based type of issue that the therapist will, will have. So I have another question. Yeah. What if, you know, as if someone's listening to this podcast and they're a client, what might they they look for if it's not working? Mm. If it doesn't feel right, how might they might know that, if that makes sense? Because a lot of them, the only experience is kind of maybe toxic relationships. And so how what might be uh, some signs that like a client could see and say, maybe I need to change this relationship. Maybe I need to find another therapist or... First thing I thought of when you said that was the necessity and the importance of the client being able to share that and talk about that first with their therapist. Because, you know, as you were even explaining that, one of the thoughts that I had is so many of the clients we see really don't trust their instincts. They've learned not to trust their instincts, particularly if they've grown up in a dysfunctional family. We joke and meaningfully um, that thou shall not listen to thyself if you've grown up in a dysfunctional family. 
And, you know, thou shall not trust their instincts and their intuitions. And, and so I feel like so much of my working with clients is, is helping them learn to listen to that and helping them to become empathically attuned to themselves. And again, I think, which is a byproduct of, of the relationship of being heard and understood first in the context of a relationship between the client and the therapist. But a lot of the work is really about listening and listening and trusting your instincts and your intuition and then being able to talk about them with your therapist. So what I would really encourage a lot of clients is if you feel as if you were missing something or you're being missed, if there's something about the experience that you're not feeling known or safety, I mean, safety is a primary issue. If there's something about an issue that you're not feeling safe, first off, I'd really love to see people be able to talk about this and present that with their therapist. I think that requires a lot of courage. And, and I understand that's probably not something that will come very easy to clients, but something I think that is of vital importance is to be able to talk about that because there may be some things happening there that are transferential, meaning there may be some things, as you mentioned, that this client is bringing in from their family of origin and they are transferring that information to the therapist without ever really talking about it or exploring it. So they're deducing or they're concluding or interpreting experiences as um, negative or dysfunctional or and without really being able to share and talk about them, which again would give the therapist more information and the ability to address those issues with the client. And once I think the client has been able to do that, then I think there's an opportunity there as the therapist and the client are be able to talk about it, then to really maybe ultimately determine whether it's a good fit or whether it's not. And I'm not quite sure that it's always going to be a great fit. And, and I think part of the I hope if somebody's working with me and it's not a good fit and we've talked about it and we've really examined to make sure that it's in the client's best interest, again, that it's not a good fit, I want them to find a good fit. I mean, because I think that fit is going to be so important. And if for some reason we're not lining up, I would much rather, yeah, end the therapy, get that client to a, to a different therapist in which they felt maybe understood in a way in which I somehow, maybe because of something from my life, wasn't able to, to see the client as best as they needed to be seen, then, you know, I hope the client can get that and find that. But I really encourage people to be able to talk about it. And I think I would just kind of even be a little bit more, even maybe a little stronger and say, if you do bring that up to your therapist and they can't have that conversation with you in a safe way, then maybe that would be a sign. Go find another therapist or find, I mean, I always say to each client, give it a couple times. It takes therapeutic relationship a few times to get started. But if if you do bring that up and, and the therapist doesn't want to talk about it or kind of you don't feel heard or safe about it and, and you try that, I would definitely encourage a, a client to like maybe find another therapist or try somebody else or. Absolutely. Yeah. And then sometimes it just is. It's just not it doesn't the personalities don't jive and, and they don't. Uh, fit together but yeah no i yeah i think you're right i I think particularly issues of safety if for some reason you're not feeling safe that's of vital importance to to examine and to think about what might be happening and but no i yeah absolutely completely agree so i have one more question if there is a good relationship with your therapist how does this actually create change for a client why is this relationship so important to a client and why, how does it actually facilitate a client comes in, they're here, they want to get to here, you know, they're at A, they want to get to B. Why? Why have this great relationship with your therapist? Yeah. And that really being the fundamental question, you're right. And that 
Carl Rogers actually is the first thing that just popped up in my mind when you mentioned that. And when I was in grad school, I naturally gravitated to the work of Carl Rogers. Maybe for people who are listening, if you don't know about Carl Rogers, he was the creator of person-centered or th- it was called person-centered therapy. And it kind of grew out of humanistic therapy, psychotherapy. And I think Carl Rogers in some ways gets a bad rap in the sense that I think people may think that his, his work or his theory is overly simplistic, but I don't believe that to be true whatsoever. I mean, he may not have this really deep structural theory and so forth, but but I think what was really so profound about Carl Rogers' work was Carl Rogers really believed that the client understood the, the answers to his or her own life. And it was about the therapist's relationship with the client as a facilitator, which was really of utmost importance in helping that client along in terms of that, that client's work. And what Carl Rogers really emphasized was this word empathic attunement that we've been talking about in reflection and summarization and clarification. And with the goal of the client really feeling known and heard and understood by the therapist. And the idea, what I what I see is the idea behind Carl Rogers' theory and his work was that it is setting up a relationship that primes the client to do the work that the client, you know, so essentially it's, it's the therapeutic relationship is of utmost important because it essentially sets up the environment, so to speak, or the relationship for the client to grow. And if you look at that from a a neuroscience perspective, which I am by no means any form of expert on, and, and I'm just myself delving into and trying to learn as much as I can, because it's really talking about the neuro changes that occur as a result of the relationships that we experience. And I think what we're finding is that to be safe, we keep talking about this word safety, and that's what I tend to work with with my couples is if I we can't develop some form of safety here between the two of you, we're really going to have a very difficult time moving forward. And we have to have safety in this relationship. And that's of primary work. Uh, Sue Johnson's work of emotionally focused therapy works so well with that. And so the, the therapeutic relationship, in my opinion, is just absolutely critical and of utmost importance, again, to set up the, the necessary dynamics to create a potential for change within the client. And again, that, that looks like, as we've talked about, safety, empathic attunement, being known, being understood, validation, normalization, and then allowing the client to really develop what, what, I, what I see is really undeveloped parts of self. And going back to, to what we talked about earlier is whatever particular templates were developed because of the survival principles, there were many things I think about it, every client that weren't developed, you know, or they weren't nurtured and they weren't grown. And I think this is, again, one of the benefits of, of creating the, the therapeutic relationship of, and providing psychotherapy is to provide a clinical experience in which the client gets to develop and grow essentially undeveloped parts of self. And these are the parts in which I believe the client can have choice and they can have the capacity for greater relationships. They can have, as we mentioned earlier, this wonderful balance between sympathetic and parasympathetic. So basically it's the ability to self-soothe and not be emotionally dysregulated. And so therefore not having to go to potentially unhealthy coping, whether that's sex addiction, whether that's substance abuse, whether that's over shopping, overspending, 
Right. So out of that relationship, that therapeutic relationship, they slowly kind of get, like you said earlier, when we were talking, they get that reparenting and they actually can be more in tune to themselves, more regulated, which in turn then allows them to make better decisions for themselves because they're regulated. They're not in so much internal distress. Right. And then they and then they can uh, make those decisions. And absolutely, you know, as opposed to making either what I call this, you know, reflexive decisions, you know, meaning decisions made out of these templates or decisions made out of chaos or decisions made out of dysregulation and crisis. They actually have a nervous system that is in balance, that's actually balanced. Therefore, there's actually the ability for the prefrontal cortex to actually make healthy decision making. And there's the opportunity for, I think, when we have the ability to have insight and we have greater understanding and we have a nervous system that's imbalanced and we get the opportunity to make good decisions, more likely than not through that process, people generally want to make those good decisions because we don't like pain, you know, and we like pleasure and generally we're going to seek pleasurable experiences. And if we now know what a pleasurable experience looks like for us because we've done the work, we're self-aware And we know ultimately what is kind of life-giving versus life-nullifying, then ultimately being able to make that choice, I think clients now have the opportunity to have hopefully what will be a long-term, joyful, life-enhancing experience, which is, again, as marriage and family therapists, you know, we want people to have healthy relationships. Definitely. So if, is there anything else before we kind of wrap up and, and get to the end that you would like to add or let anybody out there who's thinking of getting therapy or in therapy? The thought that I had when you mentioned that was I believe psychotherapy is so important and it's something you can't get from a book. I and mean, that's the first thought that I had. Absolutely. I, I, I totally agree with you. I, I, a lot of clients come in and they have a lot of shame and everything. And they're like, give me the book. I'll do all, I'll do all the workbook. And then I'll come back and I'll be I'll be better. And it's like, you, you've got relationships to build here. It's so true. And, and I've had so many of those clients myself and, and they just want, you know, just give me the steps, give me the book or give me the steps. And, and, and again, I wish it were that easy. I mean, and if it yeah. were and I believed in that, that's what I would be, I would really want clients to be able to do. But what I've learned is it's about the relationship and therapy and psychotherapy is the context in which people change. I mean, in my opinion, and and ultimately, I think that's what I would want to leave the listeners with is that, and I wouldn't be able to hear, or I wouldn't be able to be here talking about this with such just enthusiasm and excitement if I didn't really believe in this, but it's the relationship. And it is ultimately about the time invested in that psychotherapeutic relationship that changes people's lives. And I've seen it I've experienced it. I've experienced it personally. I, I provide it professionally. And it's something that I I really am so excited about and enthusiastic about. And it's, again, for the listeners out there, if you're in therapy, you're thinking about therapy and, and are interested in some of the topics that we've talked about, I would just really encourage a lot of you to go out and, and read about attachment theory, read about John Bobley, read about the work that he did and read about what exactly is attachment? Why is that important? And, and, and what is it and about those early attachment experiences with our caregivers that, that is of lifelong importance with regards to mental illness and or mental health? And, and again, what we're shooting for is mental health. And, and we're shooting, therefore, for that transformation. And we're, we're working towards helping people form happy, sustaining um, relationships that, that bring joy and satisfaction into their lives improve relational functioning, 
And again, that that happens in the context of a psychotherapeutic relationship. And I think there's enough new information out there in terms of neuroscience, attachment theory to, to support everything that we're sharing and talking about today. So Tony, I want to I want to thank you so much for I, I think it's just so well said what you talked about. And man, I could we could have this conversation for another hour or two because there's so much there's so many different parts. Maybe maybe we will. We'll have you come back on and maybe we can even get into some more detail. I would love because that. Because it, it's like I, too, am the same way. I, it, it fascinates me. I have a passion for it. And I know that where that is where the therapeutic relationship is where change takes place. So I love having this conversation. And I want to thank you so much for coming on. So how can people get a hold of you if they have more questions or I was sharing with Dwayne before we started today. I'm the hardest person to find because I have yet to really make a presence on the web and the internet. Um, but if people are interested in reaching me, uh, let me give you my email address. People can reach me at yourtherapistanthony at gmail.com. So once again, yourtherapistanthony at gmail.com. And uh, the board knows me as Anthony Vermikey. I'm, I'm licensed under my legal name, so but I certainly go by Tony. But that's how they can reach me, or uh, you can contact Dwayne here at Novus, and he can certainly put you in contact with me as yeah, well. And, and I'll put everything. I'll put everything on our website, theaddictedmind.com, and you'll be able to find it there too. So I'll list your email and everything. And if anybody wants to reach out to you, they can. Once again, thank you so much for talking today. It's been an awesome conversation. Well, thank you. I mean, it's always a pleasure to sit with you. I love working with you and, and, and the work we've shared. And, and again, just thank you. What a, what a great opportunity. So and if, if we get more opportunities in the future, count me in. I'd love to be able to do that. So, Awesome. Thanks. Thanks, Wayne. Thank you so much for listening to The Addicted Mind today. I think that was a great episode with Tony. Wow, we really went in depth about theory and there's a lot of resources in there. So if you want information about this podcast, just go to theaddictedmind.com forward slash 16. That's one six. And I'll have all the show notes there and any information or links to Tony. So please just go there and check that out. Once again, if you're enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, please rate and review us in iTunes. It really does help and expand our reach. So until next week, have a wonderful time and I hope all goes well for you and we'll have the next guest. Okay, talk to you then. Aaron. And I'm Michaela, and we're the hosts of the Two Sober Girls podcast, and we are on a mission to spill the wild truth about sobriety. Forget the rosé all day cliche. Sobriety is flipping amazing. Absolutely. It's not just about quitting the drink. It's a gift you give yourself and your loved ones. So what are you waiting for? Break up with that old toxic relationship with alcohol and let us show you the possibilities. And here's the thing. Everything your precious heart desires becomes way easier without the influence of alcohol. We're not just two sober girls. We're also wellness coaches. We're here to show you how to optimize health, lifestyle, and beauty, feel sexy and alive as F. 
So stay tuned because we're rolling out new episodes every Monday, wherever you get your podcasts and trust us. They have your name written all over them. We can't wait to share the magic of sobriety and wellness with you. Subscribe to Two Sober Girls Podcast today and come follow us on Instagram for behind the scenes action and send us a DM. We can't wait to meet you.